Why struggle through a post-merger integration when you can glide through it? Why deal with the PMI integration challenges when you can overcome them even before they occur? Why move slow when you can move at pace? What are the world's leading PMI experts doing right now to achieve profit-accelerating integrations? This podcast will give you all the answers to these questions and many more. My name is Dudley Peacock and welcome to the 100 Days and Beyond podcast. Welcome everyone. We're on uh, our next episode of 100 Days and Beyond and welcome to everyone, people from within the, the industry, people from out the outside and those who are keen to learn, keen to know what's going on, keen to understand this weird and wonderful world of post-merger integrations and what happens with private equity once businesses and entities are purchased and, and acquired and, and what happens with the teams and the the employees and so on after the, the business has been acquired. So much happens. There's such a big uh, load of turmoil. Today we've got Angus McGowan, he's from Emerge Best Private Equity, he's the UK Operating Director. Angus is a C-level operations executive with extensive experience in advising and leading organizations through growth, complex change, transformation, integration, and M&A activities. He specializes in supporting private equity firms in the APAC and EMEA regions, ensuring the strategic growth and acquisition programs are delivered rapidly, then guiding organizations into post-integration phases to ensure full value achievement. And I suppose that's the main thing is the full value the achieving of the value creation and the synergy and all that. So, Angus, over to you. Tell us a little bit of your story. How did you get into this world? And, and tell us a bit about your journey. Okay, thank you very much for having me on. So, how did I get involved? I think, to a certain extent, I was a bit of an accidental tourist. I'd started off my professional career as a solicitor at a large Australian law firm. And I could see pretty early on that I was not exactly setting the world on fire there. I think it was, I could see that there are really great things to be learned there, but I was frustrated at the fact that you either, you kept on turning up after the action had happened to sort of document things in a contract, or you were turning up when everything was going badly wrong. I always thought the really exciting stuff was about, you know, making things happen and being at the coalface of operational activity. And so I, I took myself off overseas after I did that for a couple of years. And I don't think in terms of leaving the law firm that either party was particularly distressed to see the other go. It was good grounding. Right? I landed into the UK and I was doing bits and pieces of work for doing a little bit of in-house and gradually becoming more commercial and more operational. And I had a contract for a UK investment bank or a merchant bank, as it was in those days, called Casanova. And Casanova was a pretty remarkable place. For a young Australian, it was very old school in the sense that you still had you know, the corridors had portraits of the old partners of the merchant bank and this sort of thing. And I did a quick contract with them, but they got me back a couple of years later because they were doing a joint venture with JP Morgan. And they'd landed a sort of 200-page joint venture agreement, which said, this is what everyone needs to bring to the party. And they said, look, you kind of know what we do, plus you've got some legal background. Can you come and help us make sense of what we're going to need to do to make sure that we are delivering an operate an operational environment that is fully regulatory compliant and that is understood and working when we turn the lights on day one. That was how I first kind of got into it. And that was working with a lot of the senior operational people inside that investment banking world. And look, I was still very much learning about how it all worked at that stage. But because I'd kind of landed into a world with some of the stronger names in the world of finance, it then they kind of ran out of things for me to do. We did the joint venture and that went well. 
I got sent down the corridor to demerge their asset management business because they had to demerge that. And they said, look, can you go and run that for us? And that was a little bit like the operational equivalent of separating conjoined twins. You know, that they shared a whole bunch of stuff. How were we going to get this entity to stand alone on a given day? And so I've done that. And I actually sat down with the guy who I was working for at the time. I said, look, you know, this is great. I'm really enjoying this. Let's do more. Let's do more. And he's like, well, you know, we're done. We've done two massive projects. We're good. But, you know, he said, look, stay around. But at the same time, he was sort of a, a kind of a mentorial figure. And he said, look, but you know, stay around. I'd love you to stay. But, you know, go and spread your wings as well. And so I ended up being joining a Swiss-listed core banking company called Tem, which was actually started by an Australian guy originally, hence his little Greek-leaning name. But they'd raised a significant amount of capital to go off on the acquisition trail. And so I was able to join a small team of people doing this small M&A. And I kind of did a lot of stuff there with some of the early stage stuff about target evaluation and shortlisting and helping to run due diligence. And I kind of picked up some sort of more financial skills around that but was really primarily responsible for working out what we were going to do with the acquisitions. So getting the post-merger operational strategy fully specced out, getting it costed, getting it planned, getting a program of activity together, and then having to carry that through to completion and ended up doing quite a number of different interesting projects with them. And that was, by that stage, I was I was kind of into my group, you know, and career-wise that was like, yeah, this is interesting work. It's varied. Right, You have themes and patterns, but you come to every transaction expecting something new. That was how I got going. That was how the journey started. It's fascinating because it's so multidimensional, going from a larger, more established team into a smaller team. That's already got to be a shift. Then also going from the M&A side, merge integration works, where I think there are a number of elements. So tell us a little more around your experience around culture and the cultural differences of some of the entities that that you're involved in. Sort of give us maybe three or four examples of diverse cultural issues, because that often is a challenge in terms of communicating. Well, everyone always presents it as something that's really important. And for those who suggest that's cliche, I would say that cliches tend to get embedded in culture and circumstances because they're true. I mean, I was probably one of the cultural clashes when I went into Casino because, like I said, that was a very old school English environment. And not only was that kind of bumping up against a much more American context in the joint venture, but I was struggling personally to deal with some of the quirks of Casino. Like you, you actually weren't allowed to leave your desk until you were wearing your suit jacket or your suit coat. And so it was very formal. So you kind of had a few personal learnings around that. But we did at Temenos... So we did a bunch of different deals. One of them was we were buying back a a Greek company, which was effectively buying back our distribution margin. And so I spent most of one summer in Athens doing this deal. And look, it was it was extraordinarily enjoyable. I mean, the people that I was working with down there were fantastic and great to work with. It it was perhaps not good for my health because the guy who led that business was a chain smoker and there was no going outside for that those days. So he would start every meeting by opening up a pack of very strong Greek cigarettes. They had different ways of doing things. They had some quite adventurous approaches to managing employee remuneration, whereby there might be some what could be called creative treatment about someone's employee or contracting status or exactly where their remuneration landed in, in terms of bank accounts, which I said, look, this may all well be uh, within the framework of activity in Greece. 
But I remember standing up at a town hall meeting and it was like an old school movie where you got a nightclub full of purple smoke. And I said, look, you know, I know that this is what's been going on, but you're going to need to, you're going to need to change this. And I can still remember a voice drifting out from the very back saying, but Angus, it's not like we're ever going to get caught, which was one perspective. And I think maybe Greg Taxiston did get caught a bit further down the line. Back to the point of culture, I think that it's really important, obviously, but it's not as hard as you might think so long as you go in there, A, with an awareness of it, and B, with really open mind about how you're going to communicate. People, people are always receptive to your best efforts to communicate, no matter where they're from or whatever their organization's like. If their organization had a high comms culture, then you just need to go up to that standard. If they came from something where it was more restricted and, and you're upping the ante on it, and that's going to be really well received as well. And so, look, you need to take care with it. I've got more and more over the years to the point, which is you can't really over-communicate. I did some work with two big NASDAQ-listed companies, IHS and Market, and the two senior leaders of that just kept on communicating relentlessly. They did town hall after town hall. They did email after email. I think that it's really difficult to over-communicate and comms professionals, and I'm not a comms professional, might say, well, that's a statement of the obvious, but I watched really effective communication in a merger between IHS and, and Market, who are two very big financial data and data analytics providers. And the two CEOs were quite relentless in terms of their communication. You know, they traveled extensively to get face-to-face for town halls because they had multi-sites. They used multiple different mediums to communicate in terms of videos. And I got to this point where I was like, I'm actually almost a little bit bored of these guys telling me and explaining to me what's going on. But once I kind of stood back and looked at it, I thought, well, you know what? That is definitely the lesson of two evils. You know, people say, look, I know all this. I've heard it before. I get it. You want to take them to that point and beyond, not to fall short of it. So, yeah, I think, you know, that's one of the things that I find it sits within the culture basket. I'll give you another example. So I, I have been doing some work with Tier 1, which is a UK-based company, which is private equity-owned. And they, do, they run a fabulous organization that focuses on refurbishing IT equipment and providing it back out to the market at a really high level. And it's got a great sort of carbon footprint implication. And I arrived there having done some work on a digital marketing acquisition, which was just a completely different culture. You had people who were very creative, very visual, very technology savvy, and in addition were working at the time in a huge amount of sort of remote contexts. Mm-hmm. And I arrived at what was a much more on-site, warehouse, in-place business. And I was like, yep, let's get ready to do these comms and had all these kind of ideas that I picked up in that digital marketing space because I'd learned a lot from being in that environment. And talking to the senior leaders there, they were like, look, that's great, but it's not going to fly here. I'm like, well, why? And they're like, well, look, if you really want to communicate in this environment, you just get on the shop floor and you talk and you answer questions and that's what everyone's going to inspect and that's what people want. That's our kind of communications culture. And I can't, it, was, it was a useful little check-in for me. Well, good comms is what that culture tells you is the right comps. And if you try and impose a different methodology into another context without taking a check as to how they go about things, then you're, you're missing the chance to read the play. You know, you're bringing your own perspectives in and they're useful, but they need to be challenged by yourself and interrogated by others as well. Yeah, that, I mean, that speaks to probably something that I'm going to 
throw a curveball at you and say, Angus, if you think about an individual that goes into a career like post-merger integration work, let's look inwardly now instead of looking at the entities that, that we work with. Let's look at ourselves. What if you could list a few good traits of a PMI, of a really good PMI practitioner, if you like? There are certain elements that will make you successful, that will allow you to be successful in multiple environments, because clearly you get almost get thrown into multiple arenas. Although there's similarities, but there's, I think a lot of times in, in my mind from listening to you speak, there's similarities in the individuals that are put into those positions. There's certain traits that they're able to portray that give them the ability to have success in a project. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, look, your classic dichotomy is around your sort of hard skills bucket and your soft skills bucket. And that's, that is definitely true and that you do need to bring some awareness around program and project management and be able to, to, to bring that into the environment because that's going to happen. You do need some knowledge around the theory in a practical sense around change and transformation and stuff like that. I think you're going to struggle if you don't have a high degree of financial literacy because I find that everything tends to go well when the numbers are landing and you can really have a great time with your soft skills and your comms when the numbers are landing but if they're not landing and people don't know what's going on then all the sort of stress levels go up so you do need that bucket and you do need soft skills around the ability to understand culture or to be able to read it and to be good at comms and to understand your own frameworks and where they are imposing ideas on you what's really useful is your ability to play back and forwards across those right because you need to know when is it time to really drive some of your hard skills and say look we really need to stick to this plan or we need to get back and just check where we are with what our expectations were because you know we're not doing what we said we were going to do and there's times when you need to recognize that's not the moment for it and it's time to say We've got high stress levels or we've got people who are not as comfortable with this as others for whatever reason. They may not have experienced it before. They may be feel more vulnerable because of certain reasons about where they fit into the whole process. So your ability to kind of shift the weighting on your hard and your soft skills is something that's that's really useful. And if you were to say to me, oh, well, how do you do that? I must say I'd struggle to give you a kind of set of criteria for it. I think it's something that experience obviously enables more and more because you've just got more reference points to come back to. You've got more ideas, more context that you've been through, and you've done it in more places, all those things. You're building a, a much deeper, wider, higher matrix of experience and context. But I think it's that in sporting parlance, you might call it your ability to read the play. And that, I think, is something that is that makes a big difference. You know, I think also having some just basic respect for the capabilities of the people that you're engaging with. If you go in there and start to be overly prescriptive or dictatorial or dogmatic or whatever and sort of be too much about, hey, this is how it's all going to happen, right, that can go wrong. You need to kind of respect the fact that these people – especially for someone like me who is sector agnostic to a large extent, these people know their businesses better than they, they should and they generally do. You've got to respect that information. And if you do, like it'll come back to you tenfold because once you they see they're not, well, that you give them basic respect for what they are and where they fit in, then they'll start to work with you much more smoothly. So I think that's another key component of doing it. You do There's a real nuance there, right, because sometimes when you go into smaller organisations who have 
not perhaps done it before, then there's a real sense of, can you show me the way? And that's the time to say, here, I've got a plan, I've got a process, I've done this before, and I can help take you through. But it's very different to going and saying, this is how we do it, you'll listen to me, and, and just stick, let's work as a team and do it my way. You know, there's quite a degree of, of nuance there, and, and I think that's important. No, fantastic. I think you summarized it well. I think you put you put it out very well. That's let's say there's context. So someone's looking, let's say there's a private equity firm or there's a corporate acquisition firm, a corporate acquisition team looking to employ or looking to bring on board an integration special, looking to bolster their resources. Should they be looking for if that's what they if that's what they're wanting to achieve, to increase resources? Should they try and build, say, in-house resources? Should they outsource? Should they do a combination of the two? And then what kind of individuals should they be looking for? Cheapers, there's a couple of things there. The individual and the resource, you know, where's the resource come from and where do you put it? I mean, I think I, I'm i probably a little bit biased here in that I am, like I say, I'm fairly much sector agnostic and I've worked across very small organizations through to NASDAQ across the private equity. So I, I don't land anywhere specifically. And I think that you, as a post-merger integration professional primarily bring a skill set and a toolkit and an experience set that you should be able to apply across a, a range of contexts. I think certainly knowing big and small helps because the smaller situations, it's more about rolling your sleeves up and it might be you alone and the bigger ones might be more process-driven and working in a team and be have different degrees of robustness in reporting and stuff. But I, I think it's around the skill set and the toolkit that, that there's bits on the edges. Well, there's two things. If you can find someone who is bang on experience in the sector and the circumstances that you are asking them to engage with, well, that's great. And if you can find that's great, that's in the nice to have bucket. I think there's bits out on the edge that even though I say for myself, I'm sector agnostic, you know, some pretty heavy industrial production contexts where there's really complicated flow type scenarios that are difficult to integrate you, you may find that specialism and experience in that is really useful or you may find that you need to supplement with really specific capability in that as well but there's bits out on the far far edges but i think generally it's around capability as for your second point where do you put them i i see it all over the place so i i tend i have worked in different organizations as effectively as an independent contractor or as a consultant right? and that can work really well because you may have organizations that are just doing this once, right? And then you've got others where they're doing it as a buy and build strategy and they're doing it repeatedly. So I think it depends what your strategy is as a investor or as an owner or as a, as a board. That's relevant. Do we just go and get someone in or do we get someone in-house? I mean, I've also seen, you know, organizations, whether they're private equity or whether they are just a simply a big company, where they just have ongoing relationships with people that they identify as part of their bench and they just bring them back and hope that they're available at the time they want to do it. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong or right with it. I mean, obviously, having the in-house capacity tends to be associated with scale. So, you know, if you look across it, particularly, say, in the US where the assets under management numbers are just so enormous, they've got the ability to sustain that. And in fact, their in-house capability, they have real specialisms. But if you're, say, a smaller fund or if you're an organisation that's just doing this once off, you just you have to find your resource. There's all sorts of different ways that you can do that. Um, any strategy, I think it's worth just saying, well, 
what are we going to do? And taking a view of what sort of resources and how you're going to fill the gaps that you've got and so yeah. on. T- tell us, just shifting gears now into, into this new world that we've entered, I think really started at probably around 2006 when we had the birth of things like YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and, and all these new technology companies that are now considered quite commonplace and everyone's forgotten that was they've only been around for 15 or 20 years and technology's taken over a lot of different industries. Tell us a little bit about your experience around how technology affects your work, how you approach technology uh, within different environments. Well, I mean, I think one general thing that you obviously have these days is that you know, technology is omnipresent, right? There's companies who are deriving their revenue primarily from technology that they've developed and they take to market. But then it's it's reasonably difficult to find an organisation that doesn't have technology all over it for its own internal requirements. You have to have some kind of degree of awareness about technology and how it's built, how it's changed, how it's rolled out, where it hits problems. You have to have a general sense of what it's all about because if you don't, then you're going to miss things as well. Like, and look, when I go in and I start getting people to talk about the work streams that they need to, to build, to get the ball rolling, I just because often they don't know where to start. It's like, okay, look, let's, let's just sit here and let's just talk about you know, the people part, the process part, the technology part. Every work stream, um, they start saying, yeah, well, well, sometimes they say, oh, we don't have any technology. I'm like, really? And then you scratch the service and they're like, yeah, we use this and we use this and we use this and we use this. <laughs> and all of a sudden there's a list of about 15. It's like, so no technology. So I think uh, it's definitely all over the place. Uh, where it's like part of the inherent kind of go to money, what the company does, right, to make money. I think it is, it's more strategic, obviously. Like you're, you've got more scenarios that might be coming in that you need to be aware of or familiar with. Let's say it's technology that's in-house, right? Often there I see a couple of scenarios. It's like we've got two systems, what are we going to do? But increasingly I see a move away from integration, which is we're a big company, we use this ERP or CRM or HR system, get on board. You still will see that, but more often I'm seeing this kind of switched like target operating model type scenarios, which is we've got this technology for our CRM and we've got this. And it's like, well, ours is kind of getting to end of life and ours is problematic or and we've doubled in size. So is what we had fit to purpose. So you have a little bit of work around understanding those. But when it's revenue driven, often you've got the technology is at the heart of the strategic rationale for the acquisition. So mm-hmm. it be we're buying this because we want to bolt it on as a module, all right? Or we're buying this because they've got a incredible client base but it's on old technology and we've got new technology or vice versa and we want to effectively migrate on to the better system and so we're buying you know the customer base and the ongoing revenue streams that we're going to switch across so you really you really need to make sure in those contexts that you understand what the strategic rationale is for and that's why they're buying the company you know like all the other stuff is about um, can we make it better? What's the right thing to do? Can we avoid duplication? All good stuff, right? But it is really different to where it is the fundamental strategic driver for the acquisition taking place. And you need to make sure that you've really got a good grip on that. If I then sort of try and pull that together, I mean, it stays part of the organism that's being acquired, isn't it? I mean, all these various moving parts, if you like, technology people. 
processes, products, services, regional differences. I mean, there's a number of things together. They make a profitable business. I mean, that's why potentially why there's an acquisition of some sort or there is some part of it that's making sense from a strategic point of view why the acquisition took place. So there's something that's working. It, do you think is that's sometimes going in when an acquisition takes place? There's sometimes two different teams, the deal-making teams and the integration team. When the deal-making team have put together what they think are the synergies, and then you arrive on site and then you start to unpick this lot and you say, wait a minute, those are potentially not the synergies. And there's actually a bigger picture because we need to be combining these entities for an even bigger result, potentially, than just the two running separately. So just give me sort of your thinking on how you deal with it. Investors are better than they used to be, but not perfect at having a really fully formed strategic operational model that they're going to roll out, right? So what do I mean by that? In the idea that they might have some general concept that, hey, what we're going to do with this is we're going to buy it and we're going to do A and B. And that may be a tested approach to getting value out of the M&A process. But the due diligence process has still come up short on the granularity you need to understand what's going to be a blocker to achieving that. And I do find that good practice now is making sure you've got some real overlap between post-merger integration professionals coming in and starting to develop their plan, getting them in early versus saying, okay, well, we did the deal yesterday. We better go and find someone to do the post-merger integration. It's not a death rattle, but it just makes it harder to to kind of have cleared out some of these impediments. And sometimes those things are going to really affect the basis or the assumptions on which you had built a valuation, right? It's not that you can't solve them, but there's still a whole lot of planning to do to explain how it's going to work. And it's going to take time. And when you're working around valuations, time is literally money. You know, like if you're expecting certain events to take place over year one, year two, year three, and you realize really rapidly after you've, you've signed the check and done the deal that it's going to be more complex and take time, it's really important or would have been really useful to know that because it may impact the conversation. I don't see people getting it like just blindly completely wrong. I don't see that. I see it more as a matter of degree, but definitely Getting someone in whose job is to get under the bonnet and really look at how are we going to do this early, it does make sense. It really does. And actually, if you go back to if you go back to your question about what's a good way of having this result available, I think probably one benefit of having it in house, if you've got the scale to do that, is that you are more naturally going to introduce them into the process because they're part of your team. They're available. Mm-hmm. They're not away working on something else or they're not they're not somewhere else. So I think you could probably mount an argument for that being a benefit of choosing that model of having your post-merger integration resource in-house because it's there. It has a voice and it retains the learnings of past processes. You know, so it's like, yep, remember last time? Yeah, yeah, remember. Yep, you better come along. Yeah, so an element of that for sure. So you mentioned earlier in the conversation about a separation versus the the merger concept where there was one of the entities that you had operated or you had worked with in the initial part of your career where there was a bit more of a separation. So you had to, at a particular date, potentially have an entity separate as opposed to join. The norm is, you know, it's a merger type process, but sometimes things don't work. You know, sometimes you have to yeah. reverse that. So I suppose there's two questions in this. Number one, is a separation just the opposite of a merge? 
or is it someone actually admitting failure and then trying to unwind mistakes and trying to save face? Or could it just be regulation, you know, driving a change? Um, g- give yeah. me your experience, your view on that. There's a whole world out there which is, let's see, say, increasing activist shareholders saying that there is more value in this scenario if we split this up, right? And therefore, you can get it driven by that. Or you can see it driven by a lack of strategic relevance to the rest of the business that you want to run. It somehow is hanging on as part of the acquired entity or the entity of its own, but it no longer has strategic relevance, but it's it's potentially a good business and it may be much better off in a, in a different home. Um, I think they're really difficult, possibly because I haven't done as many of them, but I think it's really difficult to take something apart is it's really complicated, right? There's a whole there's a whole series of agreements that you need to put in place to between the parties that you know will continue to provide services across certain areas to you after the event's taking place. There's a real leap of faith in that as well. You know, depending on who you've sold to, not unusual to sell it to a competitor as well because you know they may be in the same space as you. And you can have all the contracts in the world, but when it goes wrong, your contract is important to have, and I think it's a really important document to write down so that everyone knows exactly what the other person meant because often it's not until the word lands on the paper that people say, oh, that's what you meant. Oh, I, that's right. I, I thought you meant something <laughs> completely different. So getting it, getting it on the paper is a really key thing because it's about expectation setting. But if it goes horribly wrong and you're relying on the contract for some kind of remedy or recourse, well, by the time you're settling it on the steps of the high court three and a half years later, I mean, it's all gone. <laughs> all the damage is done. You know, like So... I think I find them more challenging for those reasons. You will definitely find practitioners who do them as bread and butter who say that, no, it's easy, I'm all over it, and I'm sure they are. But for me personally, I think they're harder. I find them harder to do. I find them more challenging. And then there's Mm. the reasons around the complexity and the nature of how you have to unpick an organization that make that the case. Yeah, I'm just thinking to myself, if that's not a sort of a niche within a niche environment where you have practitioners that were integration or merge specialists have with the activist and the divestiture and the splitting up of companies because of regulation, all kinds of things, actually getting a, a group of people becoming specialist separated, well, it's like divorce lawyers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's a really interesting point because if you look at, if you go back to some of those kind of tech companies that you referenced early on you know there are whispers around the the u.s regulatory framework you know anti-competition or antitrust whatever you want to call it depending on where you're based you know that, that make noises about the fact that some of these organizations are just getting too big and too powerful within their particular sectors and if that happens then there'll be some really big projects there'll be some really big projects I mean, if you were doing this around, like, say, what the Baby Bells all did many years ago, you would have, you could have sustained an entire career just around that. I think it'd be interesting to see what happens with that because regulation, which is so strong in the financial services sector, it's not reducing. It's not reducing at all. No, it's not reducing at all. Yeah, I just want to, I want to switch gears a bit and talk a little bit about your company, your MergeVest private equity firm. Tell us a bit more about the company. Tell me more about sort of what do you specialize in? Where do you sort of, what are you looking to achieve as a company? And then also maybe bring it back down to yourself in terms of your career and career path looking forward. So EmergeVest is a Hong Kong originated, Hong Kong headquartered, sorry, private equity firm. And it has specialized for a, historical set of reasons in the supply chain logistics and associated technology spaces 
or businesses that were headquartered in the UK. And I say headquartered because many of these businesses under the Emerge Best Ownership structure have expanded extensively. You'll find them all over the world in various shapes and forms now. And I first came into Emerge Best because they owned a series of their assets individually, but they were in adjacent or complementary sector niches, if you like, within the overall supply chain, transport, logistics arena. And so we did a lot of work there. I did a huge amount of work with Simon Pearson, who's one of the partners, who's Hong Kong-based, around pulling that together. And EV Cargo is now you know, one of the largest privately owned logistics companies in the UK and continue to expand. I think what is really interesting about EmergeVest is their recognition on this technology point because what they have continued to do is not just invest in companies of the kind that are natural additions into EV cargo, which is a key investment vehicle for them, but looking at where the opportunities are around it with smaller cutting-edge technology businesses. And they may not necessarily be immediately, obviously, complementary, but they look really carefully at, at data of usage and analytics and capability. They look at where payments are going to be critical because the supply chain is always going to be running in parallel and in conjunction with payments. They think that is a really interesting approach to doing it. They've grown and matured. They've really started to expand their perspective of where investments are going to take place. So although they started off very strong in the UK, they have moved steadily. They've done more international freight forwarding in Europe recently and lots of lots of exciting companies in that technology space across uh, both the UK and Southeast Asia. What's interesting is a really dynamic investment approach, you know, based off what they already know, but saying we need to do more than just what we've always done before. And Heath Sauer, the CEO, he's always been interested in what's just across the horizon in terms of opportunity and relevance beyond that, which is just straight in front of you. I like that. So, and a bit about yourself. Let's in career-wise, is this is this let's say who Angus is? Are you? This is who you are. This is what you want to be doing for the rest of your life. I mean, this is clearly you're very passionate about your chosen career. Tell us a little more. Weird. What is what's the journey lying ahead? Where, where you um, to go? It's interesting because I think it ties back to what I was talking about with post-merger's inherent capability, and it, it should be able to move quite effortlessly across sectors. Because what excites me about it is growth, is taking people through change in a way that makes it an experience that can be interesting and, and challenging in a positive sense for them, like not challenging, difficult, but oh, this is something great that we've actually managed to achieve what we wanted to achieve. And it's strategic as well. You know, it's intellectually stimulating because you have to recognize why these deals are being done and bring that into a plan which is more functional and more operational. So I do very much enjoy that. And there's a couple of ways I think that I can see how that might develop. And that's whether you're like right now, I go into different organizations that are doing post-merger integration. And I help them when they're doing that. I could see equally where I might get into one and and stay there for longer because it is doing it repeatedly and it needs people at a senior operational level to keep on doing it. It would be bringing the same experiences to bear, but you might find that you're standing still in the one spot for longer because there's just a constant pipeline and you're getting to participate in growth in something that needs it on an ongoing basis. But the essential characteristics of it remain the same. And I mean, if you go back to what I said about not wanting to be a lawyer because I felt like you turned up after the action was there. I like being in the middle of the action and I feel that this space allows that to take place. So it's a bit of a woolly answer, but basically more of the same. It just depends where and how. 
So, so would you consider yourself a bit of an adrenaline junkie in terms of that, and or a workaholic? Do you love the challenge of that of the environment? I really enjoyed the fact that transactions. You know, there's a big rush around transactions mm-hmm. and getting it done, and everyone's kind of really going like there's there's no tomorrow. Often when in actual case there is tomorrow, I do, find, <laughs> I do find it sometimes a little bit artificial. However, it's like, all right, every day, let's work all night. And it's like, I like it, but I'm like, why? <laughs> <laughs> what is happening tomorrow that means that we're here at one o'clock in the morning? But at the same time, you get a bit older, you get a bit wiser, and you kind of work out that you can't operate at that. You see people burnt out doing that the whole time. You see, especially people in the city where m lawyers, you know, the advisors, all that sort of stuff, you see a lot of people that are burnt out. Doing so, you kind of do need to respect the balance, and you you also need to respect the balance of the other people who you're working with because not everyone else wants to do that. And you do get to a point that you can find that everyone else has gone home, and like, what am I? Who can I call? No one. They've all gone home and stuff like that. So I do like the peaks. I do like the peaks of it, but I recognise that you need to balance that as well. I've got three kids and a wife who want to see me, and I want to see them. So that's the other part of it as well. Well, that that was sort of my closing question then is how do you maintain some sort of work-life balance? Do, what do you do in terms of your of your off time? Do you have other hobbies and so on? And obviously with family, and that also takes the investment as well in terms of time. So tell me a bit more about that. So I have, in terms of hobbies, I have taken up surfing. I am probably one of the best equipped and least capable surfers that you will see out in the waves. Um, but a very good friend of mine says it's like, you know, you get a prize for going in the water and whether or not you do anything good once you're in it, that's no one else's business. But I do love it. It's active. It You go out there and all you're thinking about is being out there. You kind of literally and figuratively wash away anything else from your mind. So it's a really great unwinding point like that. And my kids are into it as well. So it gives you an opportunity to say they're just they're now old, old enough to sort of say, yeah, I'll come with you. So So I think it's great to have something like that, which... Is both good for you, distracting, healthy, and a bit different. Lovely, Angus. Thank you very much. It was great spending some time with you today, and thank you for sharing. Any last golden nugget, any takeaway that you'd like to share, maybe something something that some of the listeners might value going forward? Do I have a golden nugget? I don't think there's anything that's game-changing, but I think that you do now have an industry which is at the point where it says it's not whether we can afford to get in post-merger integration resource. It's whether we can afford not to. And obviously, that's a self-serving approach to <laughs> employing people like me and my peers. But I think that what was – here's an interesting thing. Ten years ago, it was about looking for people who specialized in this. And now what I notice is that even people who don't do this, whether they're senior finance leaders, HR or legal, everyone now starts to try and mention PMI experience and capability as part of their base set of skills. And I think that really talks to how – embedded this is in the world that we do it's it became a specialism and now people are trying to adopt that as part of their basic skill set which is a step which indicates you know where this kind of has come as a sector in a vocational play angus thank you very much thank you for sharing your life your stories and time with us today that was angus mcgowan everybody at from emerge vest private equity in the uk thank you everyone for joining us today and and good luck to you, Angus, with your journey. Hope to see you again on the show sometime, maybe sometime in the future. You've got a few more golden nuggets to share. And absolutely brilliant. And may the surfing gods be with you as you go out into the sea. May you catch many waves and all the best. Thank, Thank you very you much, much, Angus. Bye. Bye-bye.
Hi everybody, this is Dudley again, and if you need help with a future or existing post-merge integration, I want to invite you to arrange a free, no-obligation meeting with us. During the meeting, we'll find out exactly what you need, what your challenges are, and we'll explain how our unique PMI slipstream method can help you. Simply call us or visit mergerintegration.co.uk, that's mergerintegration.co.uk, or come to our website, skillfulpursuit.com.